more than 2,000 years before its sun-baked landscapes lured in travelers from all over the world, Greece was busy inventing Western civilization. That's one of the reasons British actress Joanna Lumley loves it so much. The idea that everything we know about came from Greece in the old days, the way that we do medicine, theater, sport, politics, democracy, all these things came from Greece in the first place. Coming up, we'll have an absolutely fabulous time from the Acropolis in Athens to the wilds of northern Greece. Travel writer Tim Neville reports on a couple of the world's most unlikely ski resorts. You don't go to Kosovo to, like, get spa treatments and, you know, wear fur. You go to Kosovo to ski because you're really interested in seeing how people who have nothing and who have been through tragedy still cling to this very wonderful sport. And guides from England tell us what makes the rural Cotswolds so characteristically charming. Remove the cars and you could be 200 years ago and you wouldn't notice the great difference. Come along, it's Travel with Rick Steves. A lot of people travel with walls up. Bringing those walls down is what allows you to have those moments where you truly connect with new people and cultures. Rosetta Stone can help take down one of the biggest walls, the language barrier. Rosetta Stone is fun to use, you learn fast, and you can use it on your smartphone, tablet, or computer. For a special discount, go to rosettastone.com slash ricksteves. Does the onset of winter have you thinking about travel to a warmer climate? Or maybe you'd rather go skiing. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Coming up, we'll hear about some of the strangest ski resorts that adventure writer Tim Neville has ever been to in breakaway Kosovo, in the middle of the Balkans, and, of all places, in North Korea. We'll also hear what it's like to take in the nightlife in Iceland, where the nights in November are extra long. Plus, Joanna Lumley returns in just a bit to share more of her absolutely fabulous Greek odyssey, from Athens to Corfu to the Greek borderland. We're at 877-333-RICK. Let's start out today's travel with Rick Steves exploring the thatched roof storybook world of England's Cotswolds. It's the classic setting for a pleasant ramble or country drive from village to village through the rolling English countryside. And it's all just a couple hours west of London. For an insider look at enjoying the Cotswolds, we're joined by tour guides Roy Nichols and Tom Hooper. Roy and Tom, thanks for being here. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Roy, just describe, what are the Cotswolds? The Cotswolds are an area that runs, it's not very large, like so many areas in in Britain, 60 miles north-south, 30, 40 miles northwest. It's an escarpment that rises steeply in the west, flows gently eastwards towards Oxford and the Oxfordshire border. And it's that quintessentially English countryside, rolling hills, woods, villages, fields, that typical English countryside that you'll have seen on every chocolate box and calendar of England, Across the world. It really is. When you think of the word quaint, you just kind of go, oh, yeah, Cotswolds. That's it, exactly. So, Tom Hooper, what, what, what's the economic basis of all that cuteness? Is it just kind of happened to be cute, or, or what's the backstory? The backstory is one word, sheep. Sheep. Sheep, sheep, sheep. In the medieval world, it produced the wool from sheep, which was the best in Europe. The breed of sheep was called even a Cotswold lion. Even the word Cotswolds, the word Cots refers to sheep pens. Sheep were called the Cotswold lions. Yes, they were called Cotswold lions. And throughout Europe it was known as the best wool. Yep, there were sayings about it which accepted the English wool as being best, and the best of the English wool is the Cotswolds. So when you see a fancy building in the Cotswolds... It's built from the money from the wool trade. And you've got some churches in these little towns that just seem inordinately wealthy. They look as if they're cathedrals in a small village, and they're just built from the wealth of the wool trade, which starts to decline, of course. So what happened? Because now when you go there, you feel like it just, like, missed the boat. 
it had in some ways missed the boat because medieval richness turns into Tudor poverty and later the area becomes pretty well left to its own devices. Did it miss the Industrial Revolution or did something sort of throw off the wool industry or what actually happened? It's other developments and mass production, cheaper wool elsewhere and a much wider economy in the world. Okay, now the, the history of the Cotswolds, it goes way back. It goes way back into Roman and pre-Roman, but there's a major Roman influence in the Cotswolds. There are ways across the Cotswolds, which are Roman, including a salt way, where they took the salt across the Cotswolds. So, Roy, when they, they say when you, I love this phrase, that when you scratch Gloucestershire, you find Rome. And that's true, because as it was hundreds of years ago, thousands of years ago, it was a very rich Roman province, probably the most, the richest of the Roman provinces, doing the very thing that it did hundreds of years later, producing fine wool. Tom, if you're thinking about visiting the Cotswolds from London, what are some practicalities? How would you get out there? Where would you stay? What's a good home base? Well, if you're going by rail, the little town is called Morden Marsh, and that's the, pretty well the only railway station that serves the Cotswolds. That's the only railway yeah. station. So, I mean, they're out of the way just from an infrastructure Absolutely. point of view. Absolutely. Because it's from London, Morden Marsh, of course, it gives rise to second homes for Londoners there. Okay. And, of course, so with the advent of the car, the public transport system that used to prevail all the way through rural Gloucestershire and all the other counties largely has gone over the last couple of decades and most people use cars. I've noticed that. In most of Britain, I can get where I want to go efficiently with public transportation, but in the Cotswolds, you you might actually be frustrated by the public Mm. transportation. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Tom Hooper and Roy Nichols about the Cotswolds, the charming zone two hours west of London. If you really want to get that storybook, thatched roof, delightful, cute, quaint England, just think Cotswolds. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Paulette's calling from Seattle. Paulette, thanks for your call. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Yeah. My sister and I are planning a trip to the Cotswolds and uh, we, we're in the situation you were just describing where we, we won't have a car. So I was wondering if you had any, any advice for somebody in our situation. So are you preferring not to rent a car? We'd rather not rent a car if we can help it. Roy, what's some advice if somebody's going to be exploring the Cotswolds? Well, if you're going to base yourself in... Uh, hello, by the way, Paulette. Hi. If, if you're going to base yourself in the Cotswolds for a few days, it's really best to go to one of the larger market towns, places like Chipping Camden mm. or Stow on the Wold. Mm. You'll have the basic transport system to get there, albeit that they might be in slightly infrequent. And then at least you can use those as a basis to go out and see some of the villages. You can walk. There's lots of lovely footpaths and things. And there is some transport... So at least you have a home base where it's easy to get to and from. Is there any basis to my feeling that these towns are about one day's march by all of your cattle apart? That's a very broad rule of thumb, but that's essentially what it is. Because remember, up until, proverbially, they used to say that up until the introduction of the railway system, most people could only go the distance they could walk in one day. And eight or ten miles is a good walk for most people. And these towns you mentioned, they have an infrastructure that seems to be reminding us that it was a, a sheep town. Absolutely. I mean, this is where they brought the yeah. cattle and they'd count oh, yes. the sheep. Have, it the is, sheep. Why, is why the squares are so big, because yeah. they push all the sheep into the square. And all, all of these towns will have a road or a street called mm. Sheep Street. Yes. Sheep Street. Big, broad streets where they could bring the cattle or the sheep in a couple of times a week, and that's where they'd be penned and then sold from there. And you're talking of thousands. 
Thousands of sheep. Oh, yeah. Like thousands of tourists today. No, thousands of tourists, yes. So I remember <laughs> in Stow on the Wold, that's one of my favorite towns in the Cotswolds, there's a very narrow little lane, and the story is it was designed so the sheep could go by single file yes, and they'd, they'd count them as they go through. That's, that's right. The story. Yes, yeah. And today, yeah. hundreds of years later, yeah. the tour guides as count you, their, count their sheep as they go through. And you count them through. And in fact, <laughs> if you look at all of those, Chipping Norton, Chipping Camden, Stow on the Wold, they all have that same essential structure, the little side streets that lead off the main market square and the yeah. main streets where they can do that very thing. And they've got chipping in their name, chipping. Uh, chipping. Yeah, chipping Trading. is an old English word that really is market or so shop. So the market. The word cheap comes from the same. Yeah. Paulette, does that make sense? Yes, yes, it does. Paulette, I would remind you, Roy just mentioned these towns are about one day's trek by sheep apart. Uh, that's like eight or ten miles, and you could take the train very conveniently to Morton in Marsh, and then hop in a taxi. And it seems yes. a little extravagant, but if you've got a couple of people sharing a taxi ride from Morton to Chipping Camden, and, and it's the one journey, and then you have your base, and then you set up in Stow in the Wold or Chipping mm. Campton, the best two towns, and you've got a charming little B and B. You've got wonderful pubs that yeah. you can go to eat, and you can hike from town to town from there, and you can use the local public transit. And you know the the buses may only come by once every two hours, but you can coordinate your hike. With well, it's that. also if you want to, it's also a good place to hire bicycles. And cycle between the villages and the towns. That's a a really good way of seeing the countryside. Those are wonderful ideas. Thank you. Good luck on your trip, Paulette. I think it's so exciting that you're going to be going to the Cotswolds. And if you are going to rent a car, it sounds like you might be a little bit reluctant to rent a car and drive on the British side of the road. That's right. (laughs) You can pick it up in Bath instead of in London, and then you're going to be learning to drive on the smaller roads, and it's still going to be... Really nerve-wracking. <laughs> <laughs> but you can, you're can. you more likely to survive if you pick your car up in the countryside. The, the reward would be you can get to some of the most picturesque villages by car. Yeah, and if you can do it. And, else. you know, for 20 or 30 years, I've been yeah. recommending people just go over there and, and take it slow and easy and yeah. figure it out. And after a few days, you'll actually have to readjust to get back on our side of the road, believe it or not. <laughs> All right, very good. Okay, good luck, Paulette. Thank you so much. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about the Cotswolds, a couple of hours west of London. We're joined by Tom Hooper and Roy Nichols. You know, Roy and Tom, I was, uh, I've been going to the Cotswolds forever, and I never really took time to walk. And taking a walk, you see such a different dimension. Tom, can you tell me uh, some memories you have of hiking in the Cotswolds? Well, I think the thing is, the Cotswolds, you know, walk is essential. And I think one of the extraordinary things that rests in my mind is how you can literally walk from one tiny little hamlet village and you can take two or three different footpaths all of which are clearly marked and you can ramble to the next village through the fields so you're not on a road so you're not on the road and then you get the pristine nature yeah. and every time you do it you know that you're exercising this age-old tradition of the right to walk on these public footpaths and you see the backside of the farms, and you, you come across gorgeous you, you, you get these ridiculously unexpected views across to some very large house, or you walk through the sheep. But, you know. Roy, what happens if it starts to rain? You get wet. And, you, <laughs> and bizarrely, you don't melt. You don't melt, no. <laughs> and usually there's a pub within uh, a few yeah, uh, exactly. minutes' walk. Exactly. Yes. This is very civilized walking. Yeah. It is. And, you know, these pubs, specializing not just the drink, but also the food these days. Yeah. So. so let's say you're hiking along and you come into Stow on the Wold. And Stow on the Wold has this one main market square with an ancient cross in the middle that was sort of like, okay, God's looking over this. Don't yes. rip off anybody yeah. when you're selling your stuff. And you're hungry. What are your options, Roy? Well, there's lots of local pubs. The King's Arms, the Queen's yeah, Head, Queen's Head. Yeah, the White Tol- Hart, the Tolbert. 
All you, within 50 yards, 50 meters of And these other. pubs are known for their food as well as yeah. their beer yeah. and their conviviality. And in lots of cases of all of those pubs, the beer is produced locally. So that would be a fun yeah. little tip yeah. is as you're hiking, yeah. drink the local beers. And they all often sell locally produced food. You get the asparagus in the early summer. For me, the big challenge, I mean, Stow in the Wold and Chipping Campton are most people's nomination for the best home base. But these are like the metropolises of the Cotswold, and there are little tiny villages nearby. What's the debate on which are the most beautiful or charming little villages? Can you guys... Uh, well, t- I, I have my favourites. What is your favourite? Uh, Stanton is one of my favourites. Mm-hmm. It's a little... It's one of the least visited villages. It's in the sort of northwestern corner of the Cotswolds sort of uh, south and west of uh, Chipping Camden. Very few people go there, but for me it is, again, that quintessentially Cotswold villages with all the elements that make up a typical village and a typical Cotswold village. It's pub, it's church, and the beautiful thatched and stone-roofed buildings. Everything in that little town is, is just like they were preparing for like a, a movie to come in and shoot yeah, it or something. You could like look just the, like a set. It does remove like the cars and yeah. you could be 200 years ago and you wouldn't notice the great difference. Roy Nichols and Tom Hooper, thank you so much for introducing us to a beautiful part of England, Gloucestershire specifically, the Cotswolds. It's been a pleasure, Rick. You're very welcome. Up next on Travel with Rick Steves, Joanna Lumley returns with more from her Greek odyssey. This time she takes us from Athens into the north of Greece. And outdoor travel writer Tim Neville tells us about two of the oddest places for a ski resort that he's ever been to in the emerging Republic of Kosovo, and in North Korea. Support for Travel with Rick Steves comes from Rosetta Stone, helping you prepare for your trip to a foreign country by learning a new language through talking to a native speaker. Learn more at rosettastone.com slash ricksteves. Landing on the wrong Greek island on a youthful holiday never deterred Joanna Lumley from having the time of her life and falling in love with Greece. A few years ago, just as Greece was starting to plunge into an economic recession, she traveled with a film crew to create a four-part video series called Joanna Lumley's Greek Odyssey. In it, she sees the sights and meets unforgettable people, from the Parthenon to Mount Olympus, Corfu to the Turkish border, and she wanders well off the usual tourist trails. She returns with us right now on Travel with Rick Steves to share more of the ancient marvels of Greece that she encountered as well as the modern-day challenges its people continue to face. Joanna, it's great to have you back. Hello, Rick. Joanna, you have a particular passion for Greece. Where did that come from? I do. I just love it. Well, the idea that everything we know about came from Greece in the old days, the way that we do medicine, theatre, sport, politics, democracy, all these things came from Greece in the first place. My sister was named after her Greek godmother, Eleni, I couldn't wait to get to Greece, and the first time I went there, I was only 18. Absolutely fell in love with it, Mm. with the kindness of the people, with the extraordinary resilient nature of the the populace there, which I think is largely because they're a maritime nation, and actually were always at war with each other within the islands and within the regions, um, but are now united under the blue and white flag of Greece. And that blue and white flag of Greece flies from the Acropolis. And I just love standing on top of the Acropolis and thinking back to the oh. golden age of Greece. And you've got the Parthenon there and the, the scant remains, but the powerful and evocative remains of the grandeur of Greece at its cultural pinnacle. 
and you stand there under that blue and white flag, and you can look out and see almost half of all the people in that country from that perch in Athens with that magnificent city all around you. And then you turn around and you see the Parthenon, the greatest temple of the ancient world. Now, I've been there filming, and I I didn't have quite the connections you had, and we had to stand behind the ropes and film it from the ground around it. You got to go inside, and not only inside, but up into it. Tell us about filming in the Parthenon. It took a long time and a great deal of careful and, you know, diplomatic negotiations, and they kindly let us in. It is absolutely awesome. All the things that I'd learnt about it before, which is that the pillars aren't straight, because to give the impression of straightness, they are curved and that they aren't in a straight line. So I love that that concept architecturally. Architects know that if you have a long, straight line, like a baseline, the illusion it'll be sagging, even if it's straight. So they bend it up just a bit so that it looks straight. And Rick, you could even standing outside, you could see the the immensity of those columns. And you think, how on earth did they manage to build one, let alone all of those, let alone with the pediments and the roofs and the inner temples of them? And then right up high, they said, and the cameras were rolling, otherwise I promise you I wouldn't have done it. They said, oh, here's your stepladder, Johnny. You're just going up here. And I said, what do you mean? Because I've got a very bad head for heights. They said, oh, you're going to climb up and see the work that they're doing. <laughs> I remember on, watching you know, that. It was, so oh. intru- it was so exciting to watch you getting drawn up into the scaffolding up high on the uh, Parthenon. Right, and then you look back and at then, the camera and you said, this is for the viewers. I wouldn't do this otherwise. Uh, I love you, they you were said, working. Yeah. <laughs> they were working with dentist's tools, tiny picks, tiny little brushes, just working round a horse's leg or the face of somebody, a little bit of a canthus leaf. They were working away right so high up you could only see it with a spyglass if you were on the ground. And they've made the most wonderful museum, which again is air-conditioned and Mm -hmm. all the pieces of the Parthenon, which actually you wouldn't be able to see it even if it was in perfect condition because it's Mm -hmm. all miles above your head. So all the bits that have tumbled down or have been broken down are all now at eye level and you can examine the So this is the new Acropolis Museum you're talking about in the shadow, literally in the shadow of the Acropolis. And in the old days you would go across town to the big National Museum of Archaeology, but today... You want to, if you have limited time, it's right there. It's a state-of-the-art museum right there in the Acropolis, long-awaited, and that's where you find the stone-carved treasures of the Acropolis taken out of that acidic air of that big city of millions and millions of people and safely on display for all of us travelers. You know, Joanna, later that night you were at a, a party and you were talking about how they don't throw the plates anymore. I don't know where the plate smashing thing came, but it's one of those old sort of canards which appears every time you mention Greece, they go smash, smash the plates. Mm-hmm. They said rather dismissively, we haven't smashed plates for years. <laughs> but they do throw mist. flowers. But anyway, they do throw flowers. They love to party. And when we visited, they were just at the beginning of their real, real financial crisis. But unbowed, blooded but unbowed, they went on dancing, they went on buying flowers, <laughs> carnations and things like that, which they would throw onto the stage, shouting applause for whichever pop singer <laughs> or, you know, ballad singer was singing at the time. Welcome to Caramela. My host tonight is nightclub owner Yanis Boishipakos, which means naughty boy. We live for today, for the, this day. For this moment. Yes, we don't care for tomorrow. And you party all Tomorrow maybe everything boom. Everything boom. Fun to balance your sightseeing experience with climbing around the Acropolis and then going to a party in the evening where they're throwing flowers. Honestly, can you imagine? It was quite extraordinary. But Greece does hit you like that. It's the modern and the ancient all rolled up in one every day and everywhere you go. Joanna, you're probably the most British person I think I can remember interviewing. And when you go to uh, the Acropolis, of course the issue is 
the art treasures of the Acropolis are to a great degree in London. And uh, the uh, Greeks would love to have those Elgin marbles that were taken to England ages ago and are now beautifully displayed in the British Museum. They'd like it back in their, what they consider the rightful place in the Acropolis. And, and London always says, well, you don't have a safe and proper place to put it, so they're better off in London. Now the Greeks have made this state-of-the-art museum and they've actually got a place sort of poignantly vacant and waiting for the return of those uh, Elgin marbles. As an English traveler and a proud Brit, what's your take on that? I know I have to tread terribly carefully around this one because, you know, in my girl guide thing, you go, yeah, give them back tomorrow. But of course, I've done a bit more research about it. One is that it was under the Ottoman Empire that the marbles were sold to Lord Elgin. And he retrieved them because at the time, the Parthenon was falling down and everything was being Mm. taken away and reused, smashed up. It was not being looked after or loved. And he got these treasures, um, said... I'd like to buy them, and whoever the Ottoman overseer was said, yeah, you can have them for whatever it was, and they were taken and carefully brought back, and are now, as you can imagine, the the crown of glory in the British Museum. I have talked on both sides of the fence about this, because I know the Greeks are absolutely adamant that they should be given back. The British Museum's take on it is that they will be seen by far more people, because so many more people come to the British Museum than actually ever go to Athens. The second thing is, is that they say... If everything that came from a country must go back to the country, what are we going to say to our art galleries? Does every French Impressionist painting have to leave the walls of Chicago and come back to France? Mm -hmm. I mean, when does it end? When things have been bought at a cost which is now considered wrong and taken away and treasured and looked after somewhere else. So we're all in a bit of a muddle about this. I'm not quite sure what the thing is. I know that we also have, from Egypt, we have the Rosetta Stone Mm -hmm. in the um, British Museum, but I've also seen the Rosetta Stone in Egypt, the fake Rosetta Stone. You could put me up against a wall with a gun to my head and I couldn't tell you which was which. So now we can do copies so brilliantly. Maybe that's the way around. Maybe they're copies in the British Museum already. (laughs) Uh, Maybe you wouldn't know, yeah, but um, you're sort of making a case that conceivably the precious Elgin marbles might not have survived through these crazy ages had not... Oh, no, they the, wouldn't have. They would have yeah. been utterly destroyed. And so, they would have been also... The, the air was so bad that they yeah. were all corroding away like mad. I've been in the um, sacristy or the treasury of St. Mark's uh, Basilica in Venice, and it's got some yeah. of the most precious uh, treasures from Constantinople that were basically looted and plundered from Constantinople back in the old days, centuries ago. And you can make a very good case that they would have never survived to this day had they not been taken into a more stable environment of of Venice instead of Constantinople. And for that reason, they survive, and for that reason, they're in Venice and not in Constantinople. It's really difficult. It's Mm -hmm. a really difficult problem because other times, other customs, I don't know. It's always worth thinking about, though, and I talked and talked and talked, and of course, everybody in Greece said, bring them back, and there's a beautiful statue, which I'm sure you've seen, of uh, Melina Mercuri, the most confident and passionate advocate for the return of the Elgin marbles. Mm -hmm. And there she is, her face turned upwards to the Parthenon, shouting and eyes blazing, saying, bring us back our marbles. Anyway, I've put in my plea, but the chances are they're not going to go back, I think. The DVD series, Joanna Lumley's Greek Odyssey, occasionally appears on public TV in the U.S. And it's available on DVD from Athena and streaming at acorn.tv. We have web links in this week's show details, and that's in the radio section of ricksteves.com. 
Joanna, one thing I enjoyed about your uh, series on Greece was this trip across the north of Greece. You went from Corfu, yes. which is the island people sail to from Italy on the way to Greece, and then instead of heading on down to Athens like everybody does, you went north along the border, just south of Albania and Macedonia, and all the way over to the border, of, the troubled border of of Greece and Turkey. In that trip, first of all, Corfu. Part of it has a nickname, Kensington on the Sea. What's that all about? I know, because it's got such an English influence. It was mostly Italian, actually, the Italian architecture and so on. So it looks like a very Italian island. But the English, for some reason, it it adopted Englishness and it loved cricket. And you you popped in on a aristocratic guy who has a mansion right on the beach there. Count Flamboriari, wow. who's just just extraordinary. Um, the most charming and delightful man. And the whole of Corfu is bewitching. It's quite unlike the rest of Greece, I should say. It's got a very Mediterranean feeling it to it as it opposed to Aegean. It a little more Italian or something to me. Yes. Now, you went further north, and this is where uh, I've never talked to anybody who's traveled here, and it was right on the border of Albania, and it was mm. all mountains and pure, pure nature. This was uh, Lord Byron uh, traveled there and was inspired by it. Oh, it's just extraordinary. He, he Well, he rode up there to go into Albania with his friend Harold Hobhouse. But I just was there just for a little bit, riding up to one of the monasteries where he, he spent a night when there was a storm. And just at the time we were filming it, a great storm rolled in, we think, sent exactly by Byron. That was great. Um, and you had the cameras rolling in that room. Cameras rolling, oh. the horses off camera. The horses were rearing. We were rushing for cover. And it was an absolute cloudburst, which is exactly what he'd written about in his diaries. Perfect. So it was pretty thrilling. Even the wine explodes. Fantastic. This is brewed here on the premises. It's red champagne. No wonder Byron's dead. I just say the name Byron and it goes mad. And meeting the monks who stewed their own wine and oh my goodness. That was so remote and such an example of how when you go that extra mile you'll find those serendipitous moments that make travel really, really vivid. Mm. Later on, you managed to enjoy some oil wrestling. Now, I've seen oil wrestling in Turkey, but this was in Greece. How is it that there's Turkish oil wrestling in Greece, and what a beautiful thing to film? What a beautiful thing to film. I think because the borders have always been porous. In places where you're very close to somewhere, you get customs over the border, as it were. You can't divide people by a line or Hmm. by a passport area. People follow different things. They follow customs, they follow languages, they follow geography. They aren't to be divided by a line in the sand. So I hate it. I hate walls. There's a little bit of Muslim Turkey in Greece. There's a little bit of Greek Orthodox Christian in Turkey. We must celebrate that. And the oil wrestling was entirely Turkish and has been adopted and kept in Greece where they simply adore it. The oiliest men you have ever seen. But these are good-looking men and you're just slathered with oil. It's it's quite sexy to watch. Slathered with olive oil. And slippery is all... And, of course, then they fall on the grass and the grass is covered then with oil. It's like a skating rink. So good-humoured, honestly. If you were a maiden aunt, you would avert your eyes slightly. But it was done with such good humour and such passionate determination during the fights and such good kindness and sportsmanship quality at the end of it. I loved it. And then, very naturally, from there you went to biblical sites and you're in Philippi, where the first European baptism was. Talk about that. That was extraordinary. Um... To look at the stream where St. Paul, traveling up, recently converted himself, coming up from Tarsus, traveling up through into Europe, which must have been an unknown place to him. And, of course, it wasn't Europe then, but the European right. regions. And he he baptized a woman, She the very first convert. Why can't I remember her name? Was it Lydia? Was it Lydia? Yeah. It was Lydia. Mm-hmm. He baptized Lydia in the stream. And 
to stand at the stream where Paul mm. baptized Lydia, which has now got a dear little church there, where they were having a baptism that very day. So Paul was the first great missionary, great traveler, and he was, mm. imagine the courage and the, the passion and the, and the thrill of him going to a place like Philippi and then talking Lydia into getting baptized and establishing the church right there in the north of Greece. And establishing the church. In the first century. All I knew about Philippi was Shakespeare's thing, yeah. I'll see thee at Philippi from, from uh, Julius Caesar. So it was thrilling in every way. Joanna, when you think about the Orthodox Church, a, a lot of people who would go to church in farther to the West, they've got more modern rituals and so on. And you go to the Greek Orthodox Church and it just almost seems intentionally old-fashioned and, and ancient. But it's sort of a passion for that continuing the the tradition in the in the honest original way and i think when you go to an orthodox church you got to respect the fact that they don't celebrate being modern they celebrate being true to the ancient rituals and you find that today all over the orthodox world it's interesting isn't it because Mm -hmm. in the more modern christian world it seems that they've changed the language they've Mm -hmm. changed the shape of the services they've changed Mm -hmm. so much about it that sometimes You'd think, is this, oh, have I come to the right place? Yeah. But not so in the great orthodoxies of Russian Orthodox, Greek Orthodox. You could pop into an Orthodox church any time in the last 1,500 years, and it's probably just about the same. Unchanged. Candles and icons. Isn't it interesting? Well, from there, you then got into this crossroads area between East and West, and, and you dealt in your show just beautifully with that very harsh population swap, almost ethnic cleansing, where Muslim Greeks were sent over to Turkey and Christian Turks were sent over to Greece. It was done by people sitting at a desk with paper and pencil in front of them Mm -hmm. and saying, well, look, if all these people here originally who live around the Black Sea, if they're originally Greeks and are Christians, why don't we get them all back to Greece? This was when the Ottoman Empire had come to an end in the the 1920s, I think it was, Mm -hmm. early 1920s. And as ever, the people who were concerned were not the ones sitting and making the lines. Mm. I think it was the Americans, the French, and the English drawing all these lines up, the British rather. And they decided that to send all the, anybody of Turkish descent back into Turkey, they had nothing to do with Turkey. They spoke Greek. They happened to be Turkish mm-hmm. and maybe of the Muslim faith, but they weren't Turks. They were Greeks. Yeah. Uh, and then the other way around. And some of them chose to stay. You, you went up to Zanthi, this little enclave of Muslims in the middle of Greek Orthodox Christian Wasn't Greece. Wasn't that extraordinary? And, and suddenly, having come from all the, the religiousness of St. Paul's oh, yeah. bringing Christianity up, suddenly to find a little mosque and children studying the Quran in an entirely Muslim village. And they were remote. They were very camera shy, weren't they? They were shy. They were very charming. The younger ones were charming. And actually, I think it's really the cameras people often shy away from because when the cameras weren't turning, everybody was terribly kind. Tobacco was their main crop, and they got a tiny amount of money for it. And they picked the tobacco, back-breaking work, most of it planted by women. You actually went out there and planted some tobacco yourself. That was beautiful. I did. I wonder how it went. (laughs) Yeah. It was hard work, it looked like. I know. Yeah, and the women had to do all the bending over. and They did all the bending, and then the chaps come along and water it with watering cans, so it was made a bit easier for them. Wow. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're traveling right now with Joanna Lumley, and her uh, public television uh, special is Joanna Lumley's Greek Odyssey. It's available in DVD, distributed by Athena. And Joanna, we've been traveling with you across the north of Greece and traveling the perimeter of the north of Greece. What an evocative and just eye-opening sort of experience. When you think back on your experience on this part of Greece, what saddened you and, and what made you happy? 
What made me happy was to go to Thrace. Um, I don't know why, but it's a word that I'd known all my life and have always studying atlases and maps. The idea of going to Thrace, which is this extraordinary area. What saddened me, of course, was going through Thrace to Evrost in the extreme eastern part of Thrace where Greece meets the Turkish border is, of course, hostility again. Mm -hmm. And so there are gun emplacements and army encampments on each side and a great sense of tension there. And it was difficult to film. And it was. And you think, people, I looked around and the countryside was as beautiful and as tranquil with birds singing and mm -hmm. trees bearing fruit. And you think, why are we fighting? That's what made me think, why are we fighting? But I live in hope, actually, Rick, and I know you do too. Because if you travel, you always live in hope. Joanna, thank you for all the work you put into producing Joanna Lumley's Greek Odyssey, and uh, I want to talk to you after your next adventure. Thanks a lot, and, and best wishes. Thank you so much, Rick. Goodbye. Last week on Travel with Rick Steves, we looked at Kosovo as an intriguing backdoor destination to visit in the Balkans. Coming up next, travel writer Tim Neville tells us about the unusual ski lodge he enjoyed there, plus the surreal ski resort he visited in North Korea. And we get a taste of winter season nightlife in Reykjavik, Iceland. Snap up that parka. It's Travel with Rick Steves. When you think of luxury ski destinations, places like Aspen or San Moritz usually come to mind. You don't really think of skiing in Kosovo in former Yugoslavia or North Korea. Travel writer and skier Tim Neville spent time on the slopes in both of these unusual ski resorts. His writing appears in Outside Magazine and in the New York Times, and he joins us now on Travel with Rick Steves to talk about skiing in places you might not find a, a lot of crowds. Tim, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Rick. So you skied in Kosovo, right next to Albania, and you skied in North Korea. I mentioned no crowds. Are there crowds in these ski resorts? <laughs> no, there are definitely not crowds in, in either of those places. Because skiing is kind of a rich man's hobby, and these are countries that don't have a lot of middle class. Who skis in Kosovo and who skis in North Korea? In the former Yugoslavia days, Kosovo had a very rich ski culture. I mean, the whole country did. Um, you know, even today, you look in the Olympics and there'll be someone from the former Yugoslavia, you know, competing. And in Kosovo, which is it was sort of in the in the south of the former Yugoslavia, south of Sarajevo, um, where the Olympics were. Exactly. In fact, Brezovica, the, the main ski resort in Kosovo, was the backup site for the Olympic downhill in 1984 when the, when the Olympic Games were in, in Sarajevo. Right. The mountains are high. You know, they're probably, you know, 8,000 feet or so, which doesn't seem that high, but you get, this comes basically straight out of the ocean. They're rugged. They get a lot of snow. Like, you know, I was in Kosovo and mm. they had so much snow that the, I've got pictures of the lifts actually being buried. It's coming back, the ski culture. So, so there, the, for the sure. nature is there for great skiing, great mountains, lots mm -hmm. of snow, and it's just uh, who's got the money to ski. And what, what's interesting is back in the Olympics in Sarajevo time, there was Yugoslavia, and everybody was one big country. And of course, they've had a war since then. And uh, you wrote, skiing actually brings former enemies together on the slopes. That's something that's so touching about Kosovo right now, in my opinion, is that. So Brezovica was this little pocket of relative calm when, when all of the tragedy and the horror broke out, you know, in the, in the 1990s. So basically what it was is you had Serbs running the ski area, but the largest number of skiers were Albanians. When you have a people who really love to ski and a people who really love to help other people ski, you're much less likely to shoot each other. 
You know, so you had this like relative pocket of calm on the slopes. An Albanian and a Serb riding together on the left. Well, what are you going to talk about? Well, I like to ski. You like to ski. (laughs) That is so cool. I love it. It is really, really neat. When they get together, they can kind of realize what's really important in life. And that is, you know, properly waxing your skis. (laughs) Well, you know what? Actually, the most important thing, like in Europe, is the lunch break. And so I can't tell you how many times I would be skiing in Kosovo and like stop, you know, usually with an Albanian and we would sit down to lunch, usually at a Serb restaurant, they would be friends. My host would just kind of wag his finger and all of a sudden, you know, four glasses of Rocky, you know, the brandy would show up. And so you'd sit around drinking coffee and having shots of (laughs) Of brandy. It's it's a wonderful, wonderful thing. So are you saying if we want to go to Europe and ski, of course you can go to make the scene in France or Austria or Switzerland, but you have an option to ski in Kosovo and actually get some good skiing in? You know, I would recommend that most people wait. And the reason for that is because after the war, no real meaningful investments were made in this area. And so the infrastructure is crumbling. Now mm-hmm. that has not killed the desire to ski. And you still have a lot of people coming there, mostly locals coming to ski. But the thing that's really interesting is that you now have the largest ski management company in the world, this French group called the Compagnie des Alpes. They have just inked a deal to spend half a billion dollars to bring Brezovica back up to its former glory days. New hotels, wow. new lifts. Yeah, now this is going to be a long range plan. You're talking 17 years. But, but the longer you, you wait, the more services you're going to have. And mm-hmm. before long, this is going to be... It would not surprise me if people think, you know what, skiing in Switzerland is great, but it's really expensive. For an eighth of the cost, I can go have really, really great skiing in Kosovo. You could do that now if you'd put up with lesser facilities. I mean, it's cheap and it's skiable. It's totally cheap and it's skiable, but it is definitely adventure skiing. Like, mm-hmm. I was there. Do you have chairlifts for... or do you have gondolas or do you have. No, you have chairlifts. Now, mm-hmm. But the problem is, is that. A lot of them aren't functioning. They're just old and unsafe. But but now USAID has gotten involved. A lot of um, other development groups have gotten involved. And they've got at least two of the lifts running now. Now, the fun thing, though, is if you're an adventure skier, like you don't go to Kosovo to like get spa treatments and, you know, wear fur. You go to Kosovo to ski because you're really interested in seeing how hmm. like people who have nothing, who have been through tragedy, still cling to this very wonderful sport. And so... You know, all these funny businesses have popped up. For instance, when the lifts aren't running, there's a guy who runs, he got a snowcat from somewhere in Germany. You know, so one of these like tank-like vehicles, you know, with the big tread that you can fit maybe 10 people inside. And this thing, you pay seven euros and this guy will like drive you all the way up to the top of the hill. And then you have an entire resort's worth of untracked snow before you. Mm. And so it's just... If you want, like, really, really poor man's helicopter skiing, this is it. Adventure travel writer Tim Nevels, our guest right now on Travel with Rick Steves, and Tim's getting us ready for ski season in some of the world's most unlikely places. Tim writes for Outside Magazine, and his website is timneville.net. Okay, so you've done Kosovo. Now you want to, like, take it one step further. I guess, logically, you go skiing in North Korea, right? <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I don't think there's any logic involved in that at all, but... I had heard, this is maybe a couple years ago, that Kim Jong-un, so the current leader of North Korea, was building a ski resort. I mean, it just sounds so absurd, but most people don't realize that Kim Jong-un was actually educated in Switzerland in a private school outside Mm. of Bern. So there's no way that you can be a student in Switzerland and not come into contact with skiing. 
So since he's been in power, though, he's been trying to give the people something fun to do, at least the chosen people, the ones who are loyal to the regime, who have been loyal to the regime, you know, sort of if you're any sort of dissident, forget it. Your life is, is basically over. But anyway, so he now in Pyongyang, you have water parks and you have, you know, a roller coaster area called the People's Pleasure Ground. And so his greatest, you know, pleasure project yet was this ski resort that he opened. And it took 18 months for the army to build it. The army builds everything in North Korea. And literally the span of 18 months, they went from a forested mountain to, I hate to say it, but it's kind of a really cool ski area. You know, you've got all these north-facing runs, about 10 north-facing runs. It's about the same vertical relief as copper in Colorado. They get tons and tons of really light, dry, high-quality snow. And the hotels are immaculate. That's what, of course, what they want you to see. What you don't see is that there's a prison camp like, you know, 100 miles away that the people who are skiing there are most likely ex-military or very well-to-do because there's there's so much corruption. The elite, yeah. That said, you know, Kim Jong-un has like every New Year's Eve, he gives a New Year's Day, he gives a big speech about sort of like State of the Union kind of speech. And he's repeatedly said he wants North Korea to become a sporting nation. And so without fail, I'm sure you're going to end up with school groups coming up to learn how to ski. You know, workers who meet their quotas or whatever, you know, will be offered a chance to go ski. So you can look at this. But Korea doesn't really have a tradition of skiing. There's no ski culture there, I wouldn't imagine. So do you find any like disconnects or goofiness in the in the way it's all designed, or does it feel like a Swiss ski resort just with a different language? There's a lot of goofiness going on, especially in the north. Like the estimates I've seen said maybe five thousand people ski there, I, and that's four thousand nine hundred and fifty more than probably really who do ski. There are some things that are definitely off. The first thing that you notice are the lifts. You know, Kim Jong Un went to Switzerland and said. We'd like to buy some lifts. And the Swiss said, sure, we'll put together a $7.7 million package of lifts. But then the Swiss government stepped in and said, "Uh uh-uh, these are luxury goods. This will violate UN sanctions. And so the North Koreans then went to the Chinese. And so they bought these Chinese lifts. And they are atrocious. You know, normally when you go skiing and you get on a lift, it'll take you, let's say, 10 minutes to get to the top. This took us 43 minutes. They, you <laughs> 43 minutes faster. in a North Korean ski lift. Yeah. And meanwhile, there's this Sitting there, probably sharing the, sharing the chairlift with a prison warden or somebody. No, again, this is something that's really interesting about... We have these images of North Korea as being this robot people just marching to absolute lies. But the thing is, is when you take North Koreans, and perhaps they're the elite North Koreans, and you put them on a chairlift, you know... A lot of the North Koreans don't even ski, so they'll just ride these lifts around and around and around. And so as you're going up, you'll pass some North Koreans coming down, and they just have the happiest expressions on their faces. They're waving at you like, this can't be real. Like, look how cool this is, you know? And so if it's 43 minutes up, that's an hour and a half up and down, and they're probably just thinking this is the greatest little experience because they can't travel really, right? Right, exactly. You know, and that's one thing that's really difficult is even North Koreans, like you just can't go travel out of the, out of your city. You have to get police permission and there are all these checkpoints. So what's the hotel? What's the Apri ski sort of scene in, a, in North Korea? <laughs> the Apri ski. Also, that was one of my favorite yeah. moments of, of this trip. I was in the entire country for seven very long nights and only two of them at this ski resort. 
But we did go check out the opera uh, scene one night. So the hotels, first of all, on the outside, they have sort of an Asian flair to them. But you walk in and you think, oh, my goodness, this could be straight out of something in Zermatt. Even the door handles are just like the ones in Switzerland, you know. So it's very, very well done. Shiny tiles. The woodwork's immaculate. And nothing needs to add up economically because he's just funded it. I mean, there's no sense. Oh, yeah. It's a good business. There's no way that they're making any, any money on this. But that said, it's still kind of a really fun experience. So the hotels are very well done. You know, they're a little hot. They, they kind of overdo it on the heating. But, but yeah, so the opera scene, we go down into one of the bars and we walk in and it's completely empty. That's not true. There were two guys, two Korean guys sitting at the bar shucking a dried mackerel. That was sort of, you know, we do beer and peanuts. They do, you know, dried mackerel. And so he's just sitting there kind of shucking the skin off it, eating it. We walked in and they left, which felt kind of weird. But then there were two bartenders there and they were kind of dressed almost like flight attendants, you know, just very red vests and red skirts and just looked very, very proper. And they, you know, see us come in. They basically hand us a bottle of soju, which is this rice wine, flick off the lights, hit another switch. And all of a sudden it's disco party and the lights are going and they're just sauntering around singing sassy duets to each other, karaoke style. I mean, they could sing beautifully, but, you know, you're talking there's six people in the bar and two of them are running it. So it was a very, very odd experience, but still a a definite highlight of the trip. Beautiful travel experience. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Tim Neville about skiing in in obvious places like Kosovo and North Korea. Tim, uh, now that you've done those two uh, ski resorts, uh, is there any other place that can top those? That's going to be really, really tough, I think. Wow. You know, I, I would love to ski in Iran. You know, there's some great That's skiing. That's a big deal. I've seen the ski Google. resorts right outside of Tehran, yeah. Yeah. Tim, how can we learn more about your experience? Well, I wrote a story about it for Ski Magazine that came out in November 2014 that's now being reproduced in Best American Travel Writing. All right. Thanks so much, and um, good luck on your skiing and in other beautiful locales. Thanks for having me, Rick. Wintertime in Iceland is stormy and unforgiving. And it gets an early start. Our own Isaac Kaplan Wolner recently stopped over in the capital city Reykjavik on his way back from Europe. His mission? To enjoy the extra long hours of nightlife in the world's darkest city during the annual Iceland Airwaves Music Festival. One thing I learned quickly. If you go out on the town in Reykjavik, be prepared for a very long night. Yeah, I like to party late and start late. It's stormy in winter, and I'm finding it hard to get used to the lack of daylight here in the far north. But locals I spoke to said they make full use of those long nights. In the summer we drink because we're happy, in the winter we drink because we're sad, so it's like pretty similar, I guess. But Icelanders, they drink to like really like celebrate life and really get into it. So like we're all friends when we're drunk. Typically, young people in Reykjavik will gather at a friend's house on a Friday or Saturday to hang out and drink until midnight or later. Alcohol is so expensive here, so that people get real liquored up at home, and then they they go out and they maintain with like a drink or two, right? But they hit the town drunk. At least the young people do. And then that sort of shapes the whole experience. At a time when most people would consider going to bed, their night is just beginning. It's time to finally hit the streets, or street in this case. Leugeweger is the center of it all in Reykjavik. I live on Leuver, which is like the, the main street, the Champs Elysees of Reykjavik. All the action is centralized along this one easily walkable strip. Shops, restaurants, bars, and clubs line the cobbled street flanked by low, colorful buildings. 
There are no open container laws in Reykjavik. Most places don't have a cover charge. You're free to move about and find your perfect scene. So it's like if you're bored of the place that you're in, you can just like walk two minutes and you're at another one. Despite a prevalent drinking culture, the city seems clean and safe. I feel welcomed wherever I wander. Of course, I'm here during Iceland airwaves. This now massive international music festival draws large crowds from Europe and the United States each November. The city seems especially open this week. But it is a small town, just 120,000 residents, which means locals are eager to meet outsiders. Don't think you need to like camouflage yourself. Just be from wherever you're at, and that's probably interesting to us because, you know, we see a bunch of Icelanders, so we want to see something new anyway. And while young people in Reykjavik typically party until 5 or 6 a.m. on the weekends, they're very studious and hardworking during the week. There's something of a split personality on display, a bipolar nature born, perhaps, of living so close to the North Pole. Until quite recently, there was no culture of casual drinking. The after-work beer so common in the U.S. is practically unheard of here. You can be, like, super drunk on a Friday night or Saturday night, and people go, oh, you know, whatever, like... But if you have had, like, two beer, three beer on a Tuesday night? What? What's going on here? Do you have troubles? What's, what's up? Still, I found plenty to do, even on a weeknight. There are great new restaurants opening, like the hip, hidden pizza place with no name or sign that I stumbled upon. Also, smaller weekly music gigs, galleries, and even the infamous Phallus Museum. But it's music in particular that drew me here it would be a shame to visit Reykjavik without experiencing some local talent. Iceland boasts an astonishing number and variety of bands. Hundreds of them are playing both official and unofficial shows for Iceland Airwaves. Some bands even play ten times and they just get exhausted after... It's almost midnight on Saturday night. Time to bundle up and head out on Loyavegar to catch some concerts. Though early by local standards, the streets are full of revelers. Yet by the next morning, cleaning crews will have erased all evidence of debauchery. By about three in the morning, I've taken in all the music and beer I can handle. As I walk home, I stop at one of several roadside stands to get the traditional late-night snack of pilsur. Hey, could I have one hot dog with everything, yeah, please? It sounds exotic, but it's actually a hot dog topped with remoulade, sweet hot mustard, fried and raw onions. I'm told it's a delicious way to ward off the cold and soak up some alcohol. Back in my Airbnb, just off the heart of Loyavegar, I climb up on the roof with a small bottle of Brennevin. This local caraway schnapps takes some getting used to, but it does help to fight off that biting wind. With a party continuing on the streets below and several slumbering construction cranes as my companions, I look up. A miraculously clear sky spreads overhead. Suddenly, soft green sheets of light descend to dance and twirl in front of my tired eyes. I'm grinning from ear to ear as I clench my teeth to stop them from chattering. Aurora Borealis appears like a blessing to cap off an incredible night in Reykjavik. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tatton and by Sarah McCormick and Isaac Kaplan-Wolner. We get technical help from Andrew Wakeling and Jonathan Lee. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. 
special thanks this week to Tim Underwood Productions in Bend, Oregon, the BBC in London, and to KEXP Radio in Seattle. When you look in the radio section of ricksteves.com, this week you'll find links to Joanna Lumley's Greek Odyssey, to Tim Neville's travel articles, and to the live on KEXP concert series from the Iceland Airwaves Festival in Reykjavik. We'll see you next week with more Travel with Rick Steves. Support for Travel with Rick Steves comes from Rosetta Stone, helping you learn a new language on your smartphone. Rosetta Stone uses images and games to teach instead of rote memorization. Learn more at rosettastone.com slash ricksteves. Rick Steves teaches smart travel to England, Scotland, Ireland, and beyond. At ricksteves.com, you'll find an archive of interviews from his radio show, free audio tours, a monthly travel newsletter, and a world of information to help you turn your travel dreams into smooth and affordable reality. To gear up for your next adventure in Great Britain or Ireland, begin your trip at ricksteves.com.